Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Mike Pointer, and you're listening to the Heredity Podcast. Human society is linked to many plants and animals that we use for food or food products, admire in our gardens, or keep as pets. But it's easy to lose sight of the fact that very often these species or varieties have been created or curated into their current forms through selective breeding. This practice is very old, but in the modern era can be combined with genomics to improve its speed or effectiveness, giving rise to the field of genomic prediction. The process is well established in highly commercial animals like cattle and chickens, but is becoming available in a growing number of species. To find out more about this, today I'm speaking to Richard Bernstein about his recent heredity paper, First Large-Scale Genomic Prediction in the Honeybee. Hi Richard, would you start us off by introducing yourself? I'm Richard Bernstein, I work with honeybees, <laughs> actually with the data. I'm from Germany, and well, study is the next question, but um, I used to think a lot about my studies and my work, I studied philosophy too, before we get into the thing that will be relevant for the work, <laughs> maybe that. And, uh, I like Wittgenstein a lot. As I've said, your new paper is about genomic prediction. So for those of us who are less familiar with this concept, what is genomic prediction? Well, the concept is really simple. You genotype animals before you select them for breeding. And that can save a lot of time if you do it early in their lives. And it can also increase the accuracy of prediction. Um, always when you uh, want to select animals for breeding, you want to take the ones with the best genome. So it's very intuitive that when you look into the genome directly, you get better breeding values, meaning more accurate. Mm, Bias is also something that you can talk about. Yeah, basically you get better breeding values and you can sometimes even get them faster. This depends a lot on technical details. For honeybees, it's always very special. But for instance, if you're thinking of a bull in cattle and you want to test him for milk yield, he has to grow up. You have to get the daughters of him so that they can produce milk. And then you can calculate how much he's actually worth. But if you can look into the genome, you can get the information as soon as you get the genotype. So maybe before he's born even. Great. That was a really amazing summary. It feels like it might not be the first time you've given that explanation. Uh, I thought for the animal breeders, uh, we're also used to give talks at German conferences. This is all standard. For the honeybee researchers at the other conferences, it's always completely new. So that helps a bit with being able to explain everything. I see. So it's obvious that these techniques can be very valuable 
and they're not new. They've been around for decades at this point, right? Yeah, question is, uh, what do you define as genomic prediction? Uh, it started, I think, uh, about 2005 with markers, simply using microsatellites. And I think the first animals were actually cattle. You could imagine, I mean, genetic information in the form of the pedigree has been used for eternity, basically. Um, but genomic information requires knowledge about DNA. There were also some papers from the 1980s, I think, but uh, that really took a hold in the German cattle breeding uh, for, I think, the dairy cattle first. Uh, you needed a big database and to make it commercially viable, that really started in, I think, 2010, about that time. Okay, so properly established in the modern sense for just over a decade. And yet your paper presents the first genomic prediction model for honeybees. So why are we only getting this now? Yeah, <laughs> so many things. Uh, there is an economic situation you have to consider um, that uh, the beekeepers are usually hobbyists and that a uh, beehive is worth 600 euros. But uh, good bull for cattle breeding is worth much more than that. So this is the economic side. I'm not too firm about the economics. Uh, what we did in the project was trying to genotype bees as early as possible. Uh, we had different ideas how to do that. But then you have to consider that um, uh, it's always so complex. You have a hive, and in the hive you have most reproduction done by the queen. The workers usually do not reproduce, is so really abnormal, and you uh, should be fine if you consider the queen, but then the queen also carries sperm from 10 to 20 drones, usually. Depends a bit on the subspecies of bees. Um, but the DNA of the drones is very hard to get out. Yeah, the queen has... Um, kind of a bag, spermatheca, uh, where she stored all the uh, sperm from the drones and uses this her whole lifetime. If you want to know the exact DNA of the sperm that she carries, you would have to cut her open. Uh, it's not a viable idea if you want to do breeding. You could do artificial insemination, but this is, again, costly and... Um, you would have to uh, get more sperm out of a single drone. Um, I think this touches on the most important problems. <laughs> so basically the cost is one thing, and the other is that the genotype of the queen alone is not enough because you also need to know the drones that she made it with. And genotyping a queen is also not easy to do if you want to keep her alive. So mostly it's about technical difficulty in actually getting the genetic information that you need for the prediction while keeping the queen alive so that any breeding values you can generate are actually useful. Um, the uh, tissue that you can use would be a flight muscle, but then you have to cut open the thorax and you have a dead queen. Or 
you can use uh, the drone she produces. The queens are deployed and the drones are haploid. So if you take enough drones of a single queen, you can reconstruct her whole genome. That would be okay, but a queen produces drones only when she has a big colony. And this develops in her second year of life, usually. So this is a wait. In theory, you could cage the queen, prevent her from mating, and then she would produce drones. This is a one-way road. You can't go back from there. Then you also wasted the queen. And the other option would be uh, when the queen hatches, uh, she uh, grew from an egg into a, um, a pupae in a cell. And in that queen cell, she leaves some of her DNA. Um, yeah, Queen cell is not the exuvia, I would say, is the Latin word. And the exuvia is tissue from the queen that can be used to genotype her. There were some problems with the DNA quality at first, and um, it's also hard to separate the uh, wax uh, from the cell from her DNA. You need something to solve that. And we had, in German it was Xylol. I would have to look up the English word uh, used in the project, and it worked. We had 80 genotypes uh, from queens via the queen cells. But um, this is not so viable if you want to do it in a lab and you want to do it very often because if people have to inhale the poisonous fumes, they, well, suffer. <laughs> or you have to make some, uh, get some safety measures in place to keep it safe. But that's also a little bit, uh, well, it's an effort. It's an effort. It's not that they, they have uh, standardly in the lab that um, we work with at the moment. I didn't realize I was opening such a can of worms. <laughs> but you managed to overcome those myriad issues with getting the DNA. Yeah, we tried to overcome them and we made a big, big step forward. <laughs> um, that is true. Uh, there are still uh, things that could go better, always, always, I think. When we started, uh, genotyping from the queen cell uh, was not actually something that was worked out. And uh, genotyping the drones and using drone eggs was also rather a fuzzy idea. And um, we tried it out and uh, it got much better from the genotyping point of view. And then that allowed you to go onto the part of the project that's actually your specialism, which is working with the data. But the bees also don't make this aspect easy for you, do they? <laughs> Another problem at honeybees uh, is just how you evaluate the data and how you model the whole uh, breeding values. Um, because usually when you want to do breeding value estimation, you look at the phenotype of the individual you're interested in, but also at the phenotypes of its relatives. And there, it also matters uh, how the relationships are among the animals. And in honeybees, you have the deployed queen, which made it with 10 to 20 drones. So when you have two queens from the same mother queen, a dam queen, you're not sure from which drone they descend. Is it the same drone, a different drone? And how were those drones related? 
This is a big, big chunk of probability theory that just goes in the relationship matrix. And developing this relationship matrix uh, is also special for the honeybees and was also part of the project, also went into the whole data evaluation. I uh, should mention that it was <laughs> that was actually a paper uh, published to do this on a large data set um, in 2018. A concept was developed by other people, but to put it at work for a large data set, and um, what my colleagues now use was actually a program that I wrote, of course, in collaboration with other people. The idea is not all from me. The program was written by me, basically. Great. So you've managed to develop a method to do the prediction. What's the utility now of this work to the people in the honeybee world? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Institute actually, uh, um, has to be a little bit of history about the Institute here and uh, Kaspar Bienefeld, who was also the last author of the paper, uh, his PhD actually about 1990 uh, was on uh, breeding honeybees and he made first contacts with German beekeepers. And during his lifetime, he employed people to, uh, collect data and evaluate data. And he also kept on working with the bee breeders. So many bee breeders uh, gave him data. First, these were uh, disketten in German, uh, discs from plastic. In 1990, technology was like that. Nowadays, it's an internet platform where uh, the breeding organizations have one guy, um, who enters all the data for the whole organization and about 8,000 phenotypes of bees are entered every year now in this database. And the genotypes were mainly intended to be used for that database. It was actually um, a little bit of a problem uh, for publishing that uh, the uh, phenotypes are the property of the breeders. Maybe I should not say it was a problem. It is just a fact. Um, they put a lot of work in it and they trust their data to us. So we have to take care of the data and um, we cannot just allow access for anyone to the phenotypes. This is pretty much standard in breeding because there's some commercial interest, even though they're mostly hobbyists. Um, so we have the large database and for this database, the implementation of genotypes and offering genotypes to the bee breeders who uh, are very interested, very enthusiastic about um, technology, uh, for them, it would be intended. If it is um, uh, really something that is commercially viable in honeybees, uh, depends on how many people really want to do it. And, um, yeah. So it would be very nice for the bee breeders uh, in our bee breed database to offer them that service. But there is also um, GWAS. GWAS studies would also be possible. And we were very interested in the Varroa mite. And Varroa mite is a big parasite uh, causes a lot of problems for beekeepers because it's also a vector for other diseases or it um, inhibits other diseases. So 
if you have genetic markers that can predict how well the bees will deal with this parasite, that would be very interesting just to keep the bees healthy, which is something many people want. And what's the headline that you'd like people to take away from reading the paper or from listening to this conversation? Um, mostly that genomic selection in honeybees can work and how it can work. Really, uh, there are so many small things that you have to adjust to get it to work. And many of those small things uh, we now know better than we knew before. And for me personally, I'm a mathematician by my study. Uh, the model was just really interesting. And then I'm not sure how familiar the other listeners are with the concept of heritability, for instance, uh, which is usually the um, uh, genetic variance divided by the phenotypic variance. But uh, with the honeybee model, this is a philosophical question. <laughs> so a perfect problem for you. I, you have the effects of the workers' genetic effect of the workers' genetic effect of the queen. And uh, then for the selection criterion, uh, you get, again can have different heritabilities. And there is some debate what the correct heritability is there. So I found the model also very interesting. And um, also when you talk to breeders of cattle or even chicken uh, at conferences, uh, those scientists are always very interested in honeybees because it's so completely different from their world. Uh, honeybees, uh, every aspect, they are completely alien. Well, those breeders aren't alone. I've really enjoyed hearing about this work. Before we wrap up, would you remind us of the name of the paper and give a shout out to anybody who made a key contribution to its production? First large-scale genomic prediction in the honeybee. Yeah, I really enjoyed working with the people and have a very good time with the colleagues, doing sports together, going eating together and all of that. Uh, it is just a large effort of so many people. Uh, the co-authors, of course but also the breeders who cooperated uh, getting the drones um, out of the queen. <laughs> uh, they sent us a cells where there were, on, were mostly uh, drone eggs inside of the comp. And this is also something that the breeders uh, have to do via special beekeeping methods. Uh, so a big thank you to all the bee breeders who cooperated with the project. And of course, to all the co-authors and the other people who take care of the bee breed database. Uh, co-authors. I'm a bit sorry for Gracie Chipedu because I can't pronounce the Chinese name correctly, but... I'm sure you'll make a better job of the German ones than I will, so... <laughs> okay, that's encouraging. Manuel Du, Chipe Gracie Du, Anja Strauss, Andreas Hoppe, Kaspar Bienefeld. Thanks for coming on the show, Richard. We're finishing up just at 5 p.m. German time, so have a nice evening. Thank you, you too. That's another longish episode today, so I'm going to leave it there with just a reminder that you can find the paper discussed in today's and all episodes on the Heredity website at nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. 
If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks for listening.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.